In the Bible, there are a number of metaphors for the way that God relates to us and for, for how we could think about him. Uh, the Bible ad, you know, accurately describes God as creator, as a, the sustainer of life. God is holy. God is love. God is a lot of things. But then there's also these, these metaphors, these pictures of what that relationship with that transcendent God is like. And you can see them uh, uh, both in Old and New Testament. They pop up uh, from time to time. One of the most common ones is, is Father, that he is our Father. And when you think about what it means to be a good and faithful and loving and present Father, God becomes the picture of what that is supposed to be. A husband is another one. Uh, there, there are books of the Bible that uh, the, the picture of God as husband is one of the major themes that comes from like books like Hosea. Uh, and, and that's not always a happy marriage, but it is, uh, it is a picture of what God as a husband looks like. And, and uh, you can remember um, uh, in Jeremiah 31, this promise of a new covenant that God makes. He, he says that it's not going to be like the covenant that I did make with them, even though I, with my covenant which they broke, even though I was a husband to them. Is like he, he married Israel and then Israel was unfaithful. And, and you can see that same type of language being used uh, with, with uh, respect to the church in the New Testament. So you have husband and you have father. You have other pictures uh, that pop up as well. The one we're going to talk about tonight is uh, one that is a picture that is used for what a lot of leaders in Israel are called to be. It's not only used of God, but it's also used of, of other leaders in Israel, and it's used of David, we saw this morning. In three stories about the rise of, of King David, each one of them paid attention to the fact that David was a shepherd. And that's one of the images of God that, uh, that is important for us to, to think about and to remember and to meditate upon, that God is a shepherd. And in those three stories, we saw that David was, uh, you know, his, his brothers were all appearing before Samuel to see who was going to be the anointed. And uh, David's not there. And after he goes through seven brothers, Samuel says, are these all your sons? Because God just said no to all of them. But he also said it's going to be one of your sons. So something's not adding up. And Jesse says, well, there's one left, and he, but he's out tending the sheep. He was out doing his job. He was out being a shepherd. He wasn't there trying to get anointed. He was out tending the sheep who, who needed him. And, and so that in and of itself is a good picture right there of what a good leader is. A leader is not always the one who's trying to be placed as number one. The leader is the one out doing the work. And then in the next story, Saul is tormented by this, uh, this spirit, and he needs some relief from it. And they say, well, uh, they, I've heard about this great guy. He's the son of Jesse, and he's, you know, uh, his speech is great, and he's handsome, and he's a valiant uh, man and a warrior and all these things. Let's go see about him. And they go to Jesse, and uh, it turns out that David's out tending the sheep. He's out working in the fields. And so they have to go get David from there and bring him to Saul so that he can play the instruments and to soothe Saul's mind. But even in that, when the king needed him and they needed to go find him, he was out being a shepherd and they had to go get him and bring him in. And then when Goliath started challenging the armies of Israel and taunting God himself, who was the one who uh, was willing to stand up to him? It was the shepherd. And why? Well, as he tells King Saul, because God's been with me while I've been out being a shepherd before. And there were bears that attacked, and there were lions that attacked, and I was able to stand my ground and protect those sheep. And those are lessons I learned as a shepherd, that I can put my life on the line for the people, and I can risk it all in order to save the sheep, because that's what the shepherd does. I don't think it's a mistake 
that uh, the, the line of David comes from David himself, who prior to being king, learned the lessons that a king needs to learn from being a shepherd. One of the, one of the troubles with, um, with <laughs> when you have a monarchy where the son of the king becomes the next king is, you know, David, how did he learn how to be king? Well, he learned it by being a shepherd and, and working hard in the field. How did his son, well, his son grew up in a royal household, and then his son grew up in a royal household where people did everything before them, and all of a sudden you begin to realize, like, with each king that goes on, they know less and less and less about how to care for others, and they know less and less and less about how to lay it all on the line for somebody else. And, and so you end up seeing that the very difficult for someone who has had a life where they've done nothing but prepare to be a king to actually be able to be a good king. Uh, what it works a whole lot better is when someone spends their life as a shepherd, and then the kingdom is, is uh, placed into their hands. And that's actually the image uh, when you get to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34 is a lengthy chapter about shepherds and about the leaders of Israel. And you come to find out that there are worthless shepherds in Israel. Like the whole chapter is about how there's worthless shepherds in Israel. Because the people who they're supposed to be leading and caring for and protecting, they have become prey for all of the beasts. And there's no one there watching the sheep. And all the while the sheep are being slaughtered by the beasts, the shepherds are getting fat. And they're getting fat on their own sheep. And it's like, all you see that the shepherds aren't caring for them. They're abusing them. They're taking from them. They are getting fat off of them. All the while the sheep have become a prey for the beasts out there. And if you're reading Ezekiel, you're probably thinking about Babylon uh, as that beast. And so what you're seeing is there are supposed to be shepherds leading and guiding and caring for and protecting Israel and leading them towards righteousness and towards God. But instead, they're fattening themselves and they're getting everything they want while the sheep end up being destroyed. And so what God says in Ezekiel 34 is, I am going to come. I'm going to find my sheep. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to bind up their wounds. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to anoint them. I'm going to protect my sheep. You have proven to be worthless shepherds, so I'm going to be the good shepherd. And so the Lord is the one who's going to take care of his sheep. And then there's this promise he makes that he's going to raise up David, who will eventually become a shepherd. Now David, like King David, who was the shepherd that we're talking about, he already died a long time ago when Ezekiel's written. So some other David-type figure is going to arise and be a good shepherd, a shepherd like God, who cares for the sheep and does things right. That's the language that Jesus is picking up on in books like John chapter 10, when he says, I am the good shepherd. When Jesus starts talking about him being the good shepherd, he's saying, I am the leader and the king that God has called uh, Israel to have that so many of the other kings have failed to be. They, you've had shepherds, but I'm the good shepherd. You've had hired hands, but the hired hand doesn't lay down his life for the sheep. He flees when the wolf comes. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, eventually in John chapter 10, is going to say that I am the good shepherd, and the, good, and the sheep know my voice, and they listen to me, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, and this is fascinating, especially if you're thinking about Ezekiel 34, he says, no one's able to snatch them out of my hand. And my father, uh, who is greater, no one will be able to snatch them out of his hand. 
And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, who's the shepherd here? Because in Ezekiel 34, God says, I am the shepherd. And then also in Ezekiel 34, he's going to raise up David to be the shepherd. And so it's like you have two different shepherds there. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the good shepherd. But then he also refers to his father as the shepherd. And he says about his own hand, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And he says of his father's hand, no one will be able to snatch them out of his hand. In the very next line, when you're thinking, so who's the shepherd and whose hand are they going to be kept in, is... I and my Father are one. And I think that's where you're getting the idea of Jesus is the good shepherd because he is the embodiment of God himself who came to be our shepherd in the most literal uh, way possible. He actually physically came to take on that role of leadership to himself. And the image that's used for the king that God claims to be is shepherd. It's the same language that's used um, when Jesus, uh, in Mark chapter 5, he gets on the seashore, and there's uh, these crowds that have followed him to a desolate wilderness place where there's no food there. And they are longing to see Jesus so much so that they have neglected actually eating to where now they are there, they're in a desolate place, there's no food, and they're all hungry, and they're just needing someone to guide them. And Jesus looks around at them, and it says he felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he makes them sit down by groups of fifties and hundreds on the green grass. And then he provides a meal for them, feeding of the 5,000. And that's in Mark chapter 5 when he feeds them. Jesus is taking on himself that role of shepherd. And he is treating them as the sheep who are in need of a shepherd. He makes them lie down on the green grass and he feeds the people. This image of God being a shepherd and of Jesus coming to fulfill the role of, of God as our shepherd is is central to understanding who Jesus is and who God is as a leader. It's also central to understanding what good leadership actually is. When you fatten yourself while your sheep are destroyed by the beasts that roam around, you're not a very good shepherd. David was a good shepherd, and that prepared him in many ways to be a good king. Was he a good king? He had his highs and his lows. Uh, uh, you, you, can, you can read, it's a complicated, it's a complicated uh, uh, life he has. Uh, but he is a king who faithfully served God and didn't give up on God, even when, in some ways, he turned uh, towards the ways that other kings, kings act. You know, it's like you had Saul, who was a king, and Saul abused his kingship for his own personal desires. He would try to kill David when, when it was uh, inconvenient for David to be living. He accumulated wives, and he, he did all these things. And you begin to see David start to do those same things, whether it's accumulating wives, whether it's trying to kill Uriah or actually having Uriah killed. Like, David starts following the path of Saul some, but at the same time, David is one who, when he's confronted of his sin, he does repent of his sin. And that becomes a, a monumental aspect of his character that he's not going to stay in his sin comfortably forever. He will repent of his sin because he genuinely does love and care for God. And so that's King David, and there's a lot we could say about him. But what we're going to do in the lesson this evening is look at what that King David said about shepherding. And we're going to look at what he said about the Lord as his shepherd. So if you have your Bibles, turn to one of the most quoted passages in the Bible, especially during funerals, which is Psalm 23. And that is where our lesson is going to come from. Psalm 23, we're going to see what the shepherd thinks about his shepherd. Uh, we're going to see what David says about the Lord. Now, it's one thing um, to know this psalm well. 
And, uh, you know, it's a psalm that if you can quote it, that's a wonderful thing. I think it's important to be able to know the psalm, to be able to read the psalm. But it would be tragic if at the end of the day we know the psalm really well and we don't know the shepherd. Uh, Knowing the shepherd is more important than knowing the psalm. Uh, Knowing the shepherd is uh, what the psalm is trying to get you to do. So it's a beautiful psalm. But don't miss the shepherd for the psalm. Uh, It's a beautiful psalm if we recognize that the psalm is linking us to the one who is ultimately the the topic and and the main point of the psalm, which is the Lord himself. In Psalm 23, one thing that I I love about reading the psalms, and I would encourage anyone who wants to, to read through them to do, is... A good meditation practice as you're going through them is not just to think about the psalm that you're reading, but if you've read a couple in a row, try to think of ways in which they harmonize with one another or ways in which they uh, maybe contrast from one another or ways in which they can amplify one another. Uh, What I mean is Psalm 23 comes right after Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. That's not a happy introduction to a psalm right there. Uh, Saying, God, you have forsaken me. My deliverance, my salvation is so far from me. I cry to you by day, and you don't answer me. I cry to you by night, and I have no rest. This psalm is written by someone who, at least in the beginning of it, is feeling deserted and feeling as though God is absent from him. Uh, By the way, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he knows the psalms and he lives and breathes the psalms. And the psalms often play a role in his teaching and in some of the, the language and the metaphors that he uses for himself. And as he's on the cross suffering in Matthew and in Mark, the words that come to his mind more so than any other are the beginning of Psalm 22. And as you read that, you can definitely see why Jesus feels that way in that state. But one thing that's important about uh, that quotation is he quotes the first verse of it. And I think one of the best ways to come to understand the way that the New Testament uses and quotes from the Old Testament is not always just to look at that passage that is cited, but look at the context of that passage and see how that passage is used in the Old Testament, and that can shine some light on what the New Testament writer is wanting you to think. What I mean by that is as you read Psalm 22, you begin to realize that it doesn't end the way that it begins, but it actually ends with this glorious picture of God as king. Uh, If you look at like verse 28, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules the nations. If you're reading Matthew, that's the story that Matthew is telling. You know, when Jesus dies on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not the end of the story. The story goes on to say, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go into all of the nations, or go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Like, going to all the nations with the authority of King Jesus from the beginning to the end is is the story that Matthew is telling. And that's a very similar outline to Psalm 22. Uh, Psalm 22 begins in this darkness, but it ends with God being king of all the nations. And, And so... What I'm saying is you read through Psalm 22 
And the contrast between the first verse of Psalm 22 and the first verse of Psalm 23 is stark. This one says, God, why have you forsaken me? My deliverance is so far from me. I cry to you by day, but you don't answer. I cry to you by night, but you don't hear, but I have no rest. The other one begins that says, the Lord is my shepherd, and I don't have need of anything else. It's like one is a beautiful depiction of trust in the very presence of God and how there's nothing else in the world you could ever need but him. And the other one is, I feel everything and all the pain and turmoil in my life, but I don't feel God. Where are you and why don't you answer me? What happens in the middle is the story in Psalm 22 of God becoming that king who you can trust. It's like Psalm 22 leads into Psalm 23 really, really beautifully. When you get to Psalm 23... You're learning about who that Lord is. And the Lord, who is, whose nation uh, rules all the nations, is also the shepherd who loves me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Uh, I, think I, said it, uh, I think I said it a couple weeks ago in uh, our Bible class on Sunday mornings, but not everyone here is in the Bible class on Sunday mornings. Uh, but I do remember this passage as a kid. It always confused me. Just the way that it was worded, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I remember thinking, like, I don't know how that's a good thing to say, God's my shepherd, but I don't want him. Uh, like, I guess I took that second phrase, who I don't, or that I don't want, I shall not want, to mean, like, I don't want him. And I thought, how, I don't, I couldn't understand why, why that was in the Bible and why it sounded so good. I'm sure it had some good meaning, but I never knew what it was. Uh, but I eventually found it out probably embarrassingly older than I should have been when I, when I came to realize what that was saying. Uh, but what he's saying is, in essence, the Lord is my shepherd, and as long as I have that, I have more than enough, and there's nothing else I'll ever need. Uh, there's a, there's um, a passage I love that comes from Psalm 73. It's a psalm of Asaph, and Asaph is going through some, some turmoil with respect to his relationship with God, and he even comes close to turning away from God, but he goes to the temple, he spends some time in the community of faith, and he spends some time in worship, and he ends up having a change of heart, and he ends up realizing, you know what, even if the world around me is crumbling, I'm still going to have faith in God. And in verse 28, uh, or in verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And then I love this phrase, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That's a pretty good uh, interpretation of what it means. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Besides you, I don't need anything else. I don't have a desire for anything else. Verse 28 of uh, the final verse of Psalm 73 says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. But that phrase, the nearness of God is my good. It's like, what's the good that you're searching for? What's the good life? Is it the nice house and the, and the uh, nice cars and the big bank account? And is it, uh, you know, the good food? Like, what do you think of when you think of the good life? And what Asaph says, after immense struggle of faith, he says, the nearness of the Lord is my good. Like, that's what matters right now. That's what matters more than anything else. And as long as I can have hope in that, then nothing else really matters all that much. That's what it means when the Lord is your shepherd. When the Lord is my shepherd, I don't want these other things. I don't need these other things. I am not lacking anything else. All of my desires are met because the one true desire that matters far and away above any other is the nearness of the Lord. And he's here with me because he loves me and because he's my shepherd who cares for me. He leads me in uh, verse 2. 
besides quiet waters. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. You know, sometimes our walk with God is nice and pleasant and easy. Sometimes it's nice quiet waters and sometimes it's green grass and and that should be a time of thanksgiving and praise. When the Lord is our shepherd, he'll lead us in some good ways. We'll be able to have some comfort. We'll be able to have some joy and some peace. As you read through the psalm, you'll also realize that it's not always that. But there are times when you're in green pastures where there's plenty to eat, and there are quiet waters where there's plenty to drink, and you don't have to worry about the rushing of the waves that makes it so uh, difficult to drink, but the water is still and quiet and clean, and in peace with your shepherd, you can drink and you can be satisfied. He says in verse 3, he restores my soul. Uh, That word soul right there, it's a I think well understood is the idea of of your life breath, you know, your breath or your life itself. And when he's saying he restores it, it's, you know, this, sometimes in this life, um, there are things that can happen. They can make you short of breath. They, they They can steal your breath away from you. And the one who can give you reason to calm down and to breathe easy is the shepherd who's there taking over you. Uh, when I read this, I picture um, like CPR taking place where someone has, uh, you know, they, the, the lifeguard pulls him out of the water and they bring him to the shore and they're not breathing and they're doing CPR and you see the scene on TV and they're, they're doing it and waiting and doing it and waiting. Then all of a sudden they cough up and they start taking those breaths of life again. I think what he's saying is in this world that can so often steal your breath, steal your life, steal your soul, the Lord is the one who can restore it. The Lord is the one who gives you that gasp of air again and that new life and that freshness. Verse 3 says, He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. So where is the Lord going to lead us? Well, there's paths or there's walkways. And these ways that He leads us to are ways of justice or or righteousness. They're the right ways. They're the ways that are uh, going to lead to goodness and to flourishing. They're the ways that will lead to to peace and to, to a better way of life and a better world where you're not bringing about more sin and more hatred and more violence and more evil and wickedness into the world, but actually he's leading you in righteous ways that if they're followed, ultimately lead to the justice of God. They're very good. And one of the reasons he does this, and this is interesting, he doesn't in verse three say he does this for my own sake, but he does this for his name's sake. And those aren't mutually exclusive. It's not like, oh, well, then God's selfish because he cares about his way, but, but his name, but, but not mine, or something like that. Rather, the thing that's best for you and I is when the Lord's name is held and beheld accurately, when the Lord's name is sanctified as holy, when we and others begin to realize who the Lord actually is and people turn to him, this whole world becomes a better place. The name of the Lord matters, and it's a huge theme in the Bible. It's part of the Ten Commandments, that we carry his name well or that we bear the name of the Lord, uh, uh, not in vain. You know, don't, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Or, 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 one thing that's interesting about that uh, commandment is we often take that to mean don't say the name of the Lord in vain. And you say, well, how do you do that? And people will say, well, maybe something like saying, like, if you get frustrated, like, oh my God, type of thing. Uh, like, that, that's how you take the name of the Lord's name in vain. And uh, I don't think you should say that. I don't think that's a good idea, but I don't think that's actually what that verse is really talking about. Uh, that verse is talking about the name of the Lord, which is Yahweh, and not carrying it, not bearing it in vain. It, it doesn't, it, the word isn't don't say the name of the Lord uselessly. I think the idea might more be, God has chosen you, Israel, to be the people who carries his name. You bear his name into the world around you. Don't do that in vain. One of the ways you can do that in vain would be like to 
claim to love the Lord and then live lives of injustice, live lives of fraud, be, act like the nations around you, ignore the law that he's giving you. It's like he gave you his name and you have made a mockery of his name. You can do that in your speech, to be sure. You can do that in your actions. If you call yourself a Christian and then you go lie, cheat, and steal, you're using the name of the Lord falsely. Like you're wearing the name of Christ as your own, and then you're living in such a way that wearing that name is in vain now. Like I think there's perhaps more to it than just the words that we say when we're frustrated. I think it has to do with, are you making it worthwhile that God has given you his name? That's an important idea, and that's why he's leading us in paths of righteousness, so that his name will be honored. Now, I want to read a passage from Ezekiel 36, because uh, I think it, it captures this idea well of what the name of God is supposed to mean. In Ezekiel 36, God promises um, blessing for the children of Israel. He promises that um, he's about to act on their behalf. But Ezekiel 36 and verse 22 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. They weren't, they weren't bearing his name well. <laughs> they were doing it in vain. And because of that, they took his name and they acted sinfully. So his name was profaned by the nations. When Babylon comes in and destroys the temple of Yahweh, they don't think much of Yahweh. They think, well, I was able to just destroy his temple and burn it to the ground. He was not that powerful. And all of a sudden, the name of the Lord is being disgraced even by the nations because of the actions of Israel. And when Israel worships idols, and all of a sudden God has chosen them to be this holy people, but instead of worshiping him, they worship the idols, what does that do? Well, on the one hand, if they actually are holy, then the idols are going to get the credit for it and not the Lord God who made them holy. But generally what happens is you don't worship idols and remain holy. Generally what happens is you worship idols because you want to become the one who rules and leads your own gods. And you do that because you want to act like your own gods. And so you end up making your own gods that conveniently enough are a lot like you and approve of what you want to do and are the type of people, you, or type of gods you want to be as people. And so you create your own gods and your life turns to injustice and your life turns to whatever desires of your heart matter most. And all of a sudden, the name of the Lord that he gave to them is profaned. So in verse 23 of Ezekiel 36, he says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in your midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I have proved myself holy among you in their sight. So when God makes himself holy in Israel and all the nations see it, they won't be able to profane his name anymore. That, he's leading them in paths of righteousness for his name's sake so that it's not profaned in the midst of Israel and is not profaned by the nations around them, so that the world will come to know. By the way, that model prayer that Jesus prays in, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, it begins with, I think, a very similar idea. When, uh, as, as we often quote it, hallowed be your name. You know, that's actually uh, written as a second-person uh, uh, second uh, command, like it's an imperative. Now, the, in fact, mo pretty much everything Jesus says in that prayer is, is an imperative. That doesn't mean necessarily that it's like you're commanding God to do these things, but the prayer is written as uh, in, in that form of, uh, of saying, uh, you know, 
God sanctify your name. That's the first part of it. Uh, Hallowed be your name is actually an imperative, sanctify your name. And, And I think that's what he's saying here is set your name apart. Make it holy, God. That's what we long for. Just like they prayed, or just like you said in Ezekiel 36, and just like you said in the Ten Commandments, and lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, make your name holy, make it good. And so uh, Psalm 23 is continuing that idea, which again, I've only looked at a couple of passages here, you can look at a ton of them, that deal with the name of God and how God is supposed to be well represented among the nations by his people. And that puts a a responsibility on them. If you're going to wear the name of God, do it in a way that glorifies him. God, as our shepherd, is going to lead us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for the sake of his own name, that it can be seen as a place and as a refuge for righteousness. But then verse 4. Verse 4 is where we're no longer walking in the happy green meadows by the still waters and the paths of righteousness. Verse 4 is when the stark realities of this life hit that aren't always pleasant, and you begin to suffer through darkness, and you begin to suffer through the pains of death. And he begins to describe this, this terrifying image, and he says, but even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's like he's in a valley that's overcome by shadows or darkness, and then death. And he looks around, and you have to remember the image of a sheep here who has no defenses. This is a helpless and terrifying place to be. And if you're a sheep feeling helpless and terrified, surrounded by darkness and death, what do you want to see more so than anything else? You want to see your shepherd who's there. That's why he can say in verse 4, I will fear no evil, or I fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right here in verse 4 and in verse 5, there's a transition in the way that God is addressed. Up to this point, God has been third person singular. God has been he. Uh, The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's all about he and him and his. Once you get to verse 4, he says, I will fear no evil, and it turns much more personal, directed right towards God, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's what the sheep wants to see. He wants to see his shepherd arrive in the nick of time to save the day, and he wants to see the shepherd with the rod and the staff that can keep away the predator, and that can keep the sheep safe, and that can guide the sheep back to where the sheep needs to be. Sometimes sheep wander off, Sometimes we wander off, and generally when we leave those paths of righteousness and try to find our own valleys, they become valleys of darkness and death, and the shepherd is the one who goes out and searches for the one missing sheep. He's the one who leads you back. He's the one whose presence can give you peace and can give you comfort even in times of darkness and death. Verse 5 the imagery of the shepherd begins to kind of fade once you get to verse 5, and uh, you see another image of our relationship with God appear as him providing a banquet for us. He says in verse 5, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Begins to present this image of the blessing of God being showered upon someone who God cares for very much. And one of the ways he does that is by giving him a table there, even in the presence of his enemies. 
Now, David sometimes has psalms about his enemies, right? And he's often afraid of his enemies. Uh, his enemies are out to get him a lot of times, and he's calling on God for refuge or, or, or for stronghold or for God to act against his enemies. But what he's saying right here is, I can have such trust in God that you prepare a table for me, even with enemies all around, and I can calmly and joyfully eat because I'm there with my shepherd, <laughs> because I'm there with the one who cares for me and is guiding me and is protecting me. I'm there with the one who, even if I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff comfort me, so I can be having a, a meal and have enemies all around, even in their presence, even in the midst of them, and I can still enjoy the taste of the meal that you, I can still have a head anointed with oil. My enemies aren't winning because you're the one there with me. If my enemies had their way, I'd have no food, my cup would be spilled, and the oil would be, uh, you know, stolen and spent on something else. But with you there, even though the enemies are all around, I'm enjoying the meal. I'm anointed with oil. My cup overflows. I have everything that I need. That, again, back to verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have what I need. You've blessed me and provided me with it. The three uh, things that he mentions there, uh, the the table of food, the oil for his head, and the cup which overflows, there's a psalm, Psalm 104 gives a picture of, basically of creation and the goodness of God that we can see through his creation. Psalm 104 is a beautiful psalm. and it kind of retells the Genesis 1 creation story, only it's a word of praise to God where he is praised because of everything that he's done. You see his glory and his majesty and his might and his goodness because of the stuff in creation around us. And so as you do that, one of the temptations that people have always had, when you see the beauty of creation, uh, don't try to downplay that. Some people like I think in their attempt to honor God, they want to downplay creation so that they don't, you know, they don't like seem idolatrous or something. That's not the route to go. And the other route to go isn't to uh, worship creation because some people start to go that way. And it's like the mountains are beautiful. And so I want to spend all my time in the mountains. and I want to think about the mountains and how wonderful and magnificent they are. There's nothing wrong with thinking that, but there should be a direction that those thoughts go, and that direction is towards the one who created those mountains. The direction is towards the God who created you and who made a beautiful place. So appreciate beauty and enjoy beauty, but then let that appreciation and that joy turn to praise of God rather than praise of self or praise of the worship around or the creation around you. But Psalm 104, I think, is a beautiful picture of how to do that of how to look at the creation and be constantly reminded by everything you see, by everything that's beautiful, by every color and every sound of the goodness and the glory of God. But one of the things that he mentions in this is that God created things, even things for us to enjoy. And you're going to see that those three things mentioned uh, again, where he mentions the table of food, the oil, and the, and the cup that overflows. Psalm 104 in verse, uh, verse 14 and 15 Uh, He talks about for animals, he says he causes the grass to grow for cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food in the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains his heart. He mentions the cup that makes man's heart glad and the oil which gives man, uh, that that you can uh, put on, on the man's face and it makes it glisten and the food which sustains his heart. And it's like he goes through and there's these good things in the creation that God made that makes man happy and glisten and sustained. And David in Psalm 23 is saying, those are the things that the Lord, my shepherd, is providing. And so in verse 6, as he brings the psalm to a close, he says, 
Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, Surely goodness and loving kindness or steadfast love will follow me. I don't think that saying, therefore, there will never be a valley of the shadow of death again. I don't think that saying that therefore I'll never have a bad day or I'll never uh, have to deal with grief or I'll never have to deal with some of the pains of this world. I think what it's saying is that even as I travel through life and face those dark valleys, I'll be followed very closely and I'll be in the presence of the goodness and the loving kindness of God. They won't abandon me in those times. I can trust even in times of darkness that I'm being followed by the loving kindness of a very good and loving and gracious God. And because of that, I want to be as near him as possible. I will dwell in the house of the Lord for all my days. Um, There's a a parallelism in verse 6, which says, uh, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. And he says, uh, says forever, but very literally, it's for the length of days. And the idea there is goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And in response, I'm going to go to the house of the Lord all the length of my days so that me and God can be present in the, with one another in, in, uh, in ways that provide comfort and peace uh, as only a shepherd can bring. And so Psalm 23, I think, is a beautiful psalm. I think it's written by someone who knows a thing or two about shepherding, who knows a thing or two about being called to lead God's people. And it's one that I think we should remember, not just at funerals, even though it is very appropriate there, but try to remember this all the days of our life. Remember not just the psalm, but remember there's a shepherd who's a good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep and who loves you very much. And take comfort in knowing that even when you are in the valley of the shadow of death, his goodness and loving kindness will follow you. And even when you are in the green pastures and the still waters, you can give thanks to the God who's led you there. Trust in God, give your faith and hope to him. If there's anyone here who uh, wants to give their life to the Lord this evening, or if there's anyone here who would like to ask for the prayers or the help of the church, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and while we sing.